We're going to turn to our our New Testament reading today, and our New Testament reading comes from the second epistle of Peter, 2 Peter 2, reading verses 4 to 22. Peter writes this, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, Lot was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person... To that thing he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. 
and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of the Lord. And we'll turn immediately to our gospel reading, uh, shorter reading, Matthew 5, reading verses 27 to 30. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, we thank you uh, today for your word. We come to you today as ready listeners. We acknowledge that it's your spirit alone who makes the word life to us. And so we ask uh, eagerly for your spirit today to be our teacher. That he take your word, O God, and apply it to our hearts to cleanse us and to sanctify us, to set us apart as your people. Grant us faith, O God, we pray, to look up to you. Grant us true repentance, we ask, and true obedience. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation today of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight, for we pray it in the name of our strong Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we continue with our series on the, uh, the Ten Commandments, and today we're looking at the Seventh Commandment, the third command of the second table, you shall not commit adultery. And all of these commands have a very special relevance to our society. <clears throat> In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is looking forward to what the world will be like subsequent to the Lord's first coming and before the Lord's second coming, how the world is going to be shaped day by day. And Paul paints a picture of a world that is recklessly abandoned to lawlessness. Paul says it's going to be a brutal world. It's going to be a heartless world. It's going to be a world that's addicted to selfishness, addicted to the pursuit of pleasure, and um, sunk in a conceited aggrandizement at the expense of whoever. Paul says it's going to be the kind of world that could go weeks on end, if not months, without being much bothered at all. That 800 million people live across the globe with lives that are chronically undernourished. We heard last week that we're not naturally gifted at promoting life. It doesn't come to us naturally. By God's grace, we are. But by nature, as Paul says in Romans 7, Paul says we are hostile to God's law. We don't submit to it. And indeed, we can't submit to it. And so we find ourselves in the 21st century in a culture of death in countless ways that promote death and in countless ways that diminish life. And we also find ourselves, by the same reasoning, in a generation and in a culture of adultery. 
Jesus uses this term in Matthew and in Mark's Gospels. He uses it to define the world in which he finds himself. He calls it an evil and an adulterous generation. And going back to the Old Testament, it's adultery that becomes the sign for how bad Israel has become in its apostasy from God. And so the Lord says to the church in Jeremiah 3, or to the people of God in Jeremiah 3, he says, if a man divorces his wife, and she goes out from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? And yet you have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? And when I had fed Israel to the full, it was then, after I fed them, that they committed adultery. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, for they are all adulterers. Jeremiah 9.2 They are all a a company of treacherous men. God depicts his people as adulterers, spiritually and metaphorically, and God in Scripture paints his people as adulterers physically and really. One of the greatest among them, one of the greatest persons of the Old Testament, David, the guy who would pen Psalm 101, the fellow who says, I will walk in integrity of heart within my house, finds himself collapsing in adultery in the very worst kind of way. There are few adulterers so bad as David. Adultery is a real problem, and as David found out, after multiple children die and tragedy upon tragedy falls upon David's household, the consequences of adultery, even where forgiveness is granted, is disastrous. And here we are in the 21st century, having not improved since David's day a whit, in a culture, as Peter says, that has eyes full of adultery. It's everywhere. It's the age of Ashley Madison. Life is short, the motto says brazenly. Have an affair. It's the age of staggering marital infidelity, not only in the world, but in the church. It's really an age that has no place at all for the seventh commandment. It doesn't submit to it, and it can't submit to it in Paul's words. And so I want today to briefly explain what that place of the command is and how through grace in Jesus Christ we should go about to apply this seventh commandment to our lives. First of all, This command against adultery has a unique relationship to the command regarding the Sabbath. Both of these commandments, commandment 4 and commandment 7, point back to something very important in creation. The fourth commandment was given to remind us that God rested on the Sabbath, that he created this ordinance, this day of rest, 
and God wove it into the fabric of time and space. And as God rested, so should we rest. And that ordinance points profoundly to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who worked, Jesus Christ who rested, Jesus Christ who invites us into his rest. And God created another ordinance at the beginning, and that order was marriage. God creates this binary couple of male and female, these complementary parts that would fit together in such a way that would declare the glory of God. God made man in his image, we read, male and female. He created them, these complementary parts, like a light bulb and a socket. Two light bulbs don't do anything. Two sockets don't do anything. But a light bulb and a socket create something wonderful. They, they, they give forth light. And God creates man in his image, male and female, to give off, to reflect the glory of God. And as the fourth command turns us back to the Sabbath, the seventh command turns us back to the one flesh of Adam and Eve, the union in which God said that his image would shine. And so marriage is no small thing. It's not only for the good of the world in terms of procreation and family, but it's the place where God's glory shines It's that place that God has said he would reveal himself. And so you can see now why Paul develops this in Ephesians 5, when he says that the union between a man and a woman, this complementary coupling, this one flesh is so much more than you can imagine. In fact, he says marriage is a profound mystery. Marriage is something cosmic, it, it images the glory of God. It reflects the relationship between the Son of God and God's people, between Christ and his church. And this is why we have the therefore. Therefore, Hebrews 13:4, marriage should be held in honor by all. And the marriage bed should be undefiled. Why? Because it's something so much more than you can possibly fathom. Honor marriage. Nurture marriage. Guard marriage. Fight for marriage. Because it's something from the beginning. And it's God's plan to prosper the earth. And because it images the glory of God, and it reflects God's passionate, unending, covenant, faithful love for his people, which glorifies him when that is seen. Now, we're very prone, aren't we? And our society is much more prone to think of marriage in terms of our limited earthly longings. Well, I can't wait to get married to think of marriage in terms of our limited pleasures and joys, as precious as those joys are, even as we're prone to think of our marriage largely in terms of our finite struggles and our finite problems and our griefs and our cares as genuinely vexing and as hurtful as these things are. But the Bible comes to us 
And the word of God comes to us and it says, don't you understand that marriage is so much more than these things? And this is why Jesus honors it. And this is why at the beginning of our Anglican wedding rite, just after the priest utters that dearly beloved, recalls that Christ, he adorns and he beautifies the holy estate of marriage by his own presence. By the very first miracle that he does, Jesus honors this institution. Therefore, God is very, very interested in cultivating in his people a right estimation of marriage. Let marriage be honored by all. That is the heart of the seventh commandment. Honor it. Esteem it. Guard it. Fight for it. Treasure it. Proclaim its worth and proclaim its value, God says. But the problem is that our society is so very good at not doing this thing. And we become by nature very good at not doing this thing. And there are a number of ways in which we are tempted to not honor marriage in our lives. And these are too many to number. But I simply want to point out three things to you. Ways in which we're tempted to not honor marriage and so disobey the seventh commandment. We don't honor marriage when we abstain from manifest infidelity, outright affairs, but we nourish and we nurse and we cherish secret infidelity in the hidden corners of our minds and of our hearts. When we coddle secret pleasures, when we permit little indulgences, when we invest in lingering glances and we store them in the banks of our memories, and we say to ourselves, it's just a little thing. That's not much at all. You see, the mantra of the world is quite content with these things. It says, even though you've ordered your dish, you can still look at the menu. It's okay. It's just looking after all. Or it doesn't matter what incites your hunger as long as you come home for dinner. That's the best the world has to say. But Jesus says to us today in his word very clearly that adultery is a matter of the look just as much as it's a matter of the, of the act. And beyond that, my brothers and sisters, as a man thinks, so he is. And where a man looks or a woman looks, there he or she will eventually go. And what manner of things there are to look at today. We're bombarded as a people with options to indulge, both for men and for women. Not only the more explicit kind of sensuality, but all of the presentations of happiness and perfection, which generally aren't true, that can make a man or a woman long for a different spouse. I wish my spouse were better. I wish my spouse were more like that. And all of us need to hear today the startling words of Jesus that we read to us. If your eye causes you to sin, 
Tear it out, he says. That language is specifically designed to jolt us from our drowsy indifference to sin and to shock us into obedience. Do what needs to be done, Jesus says, so that you will not sin. And I hardly need to spell out the whole issue of pornography here. No Christian should be viewing pornography. It's never permitted, not even close. That's not up for debate. Pornography is never lawful for anyone. And if you're in a state of addiction to pornography, which, by the way, is a genuine addiction as much as any drug, if you go back to it routinely and you can't seem to stop the cycle of repentance and defeat and repentance and defeat and repentance and defeat, and you just keep going back to it, collapsing, you need to speak with someone. To a pastor or to a godly friend, you need some accountability. You need prayer. You need counsel. You need encouragement. You need exhortation. You will never get through that on your own. That's not how it works. Keeping your addiction to yourself is not going to see you free from these things. But there are many things outside of pornography. Things that incite adulterous thoughts. That followers of Christ have no business whatsoever looking at. The Bible calls God's people to be separate. We're called to be profoundly different. And brothers and sisters, you have no business ever ever, ever watching someone undress in front of you if it's not your spouse, even if it's not porn. (laughs) Porn. That's God's charge against Israel, that they had unclothed themselves, that Israel had unclothed herself to those who weren't her spouse. Undressing for someone who is not your spouse is forbidden in God's eyes. In our society, it's absolutely drunk with desire to undress itself. Exhibitionism reigns. Exhibitionism reigns along the corollary vice of voyeurism. Society loves to undress itself. And society loves to play the peeping Tom. To watch people take off their clothes. When you think about it, it's ridiculous and it's absurd. But that's so much of what goes on in our our culture. Hollywood is a parade of exhibitionism. The Golden Globes, the Oscars, our films, our magazines, our TV shows, they're all an attempt to see how many clothes you can take off and how seductive you can appear. And you have to try very, very, very hard If you love story, and if you love TV, and if you love film, which are all God's gifts, you have to try so very hard to navigate your way through this to find things that are actually appropriate to watch, that aren't corrupt. It's all God's gift. But God's gift becomes corrupt when people start taking off their clothes. Because at that point, they are no longer acting their clothes are really coming off. And their nakedness is really being exposed. 
And that's not lawful in God's eyes. And no Christian has any place looking at that stuff. And Jesus says this to us. He says, you must deliberately and you must strenuously oppose these things. If your eye causes you to sin, he says, tear it out. That is, do something about it. Be deliberate. If you can't go to a certain social media platform without wandering down some questionable alley and inciting your hunger and inciting your desire, then delete your account and get off the platform. Do something about it. Tear out your eye, Jesus says. If you can't watch a certain TV show or a film without nursing or coddling lustful thoughts, stop watching it. Cut off your hand. It may have received 99% in Rotten Tomatoes. It doesn't matter. Turn it off. Get rid of it. It does not matter in the long run. What matters is heaven. What matters is glory. What matters is our salvation. What matters is the crown. The 99% in Rotten Tomatoes matters nothing. Jesus says if your hand is causing you to fall, cut it off, and it's painful. Discipleship is painful. That's Jesus' point. And if you're not making painful decisions in order to honor God, in order to make this quest for purity, then you need to revisit your definition of discipleship. Because discipleship means the cross. Discipleship means my cross. It means willingly embracing pain for the sake of the gospel. You know, as Christians, we love the F of forgiveness. We love, we love the F of forgiveness, but we're not so fond of the F of following after. In German, the word for disciple is nachfolge, following after. That's what it means. And both of these words come to us as disciples. You are forgiven, and follow me. And the following, my brothers and sisters, it hurts because we follow Jesus to the cross. And the Lord of glory, he will not tolerate cherished adultery in your hearts. He will not tolerate it. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. There's no playing around with this stuff. There's no nursing and cherishing and coddling secret sin in our hearts and going on the internet and saying, this is fine. He who made the eye, does he not see? He who made the ear, does he not hear? And one of the fearful consequences, and I think the most fearful consequences, if we continue to cherish this kind of sin in our heart, is that we simply become hardened and we become cold to God, and we don't even know that it's happening. Those who worship idols become like them. They become like stones. And we think we're fine. We think that we're worshiping God. We're on the worship team. We're reading scripture. We're raising our hands in the service. And meanwhile, our hearts are getting further and further from God. We don't even know it. This is why you can have a famous evangelical reform pastor write a book 
about the centrality of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And all the while, he's having multiple affairs. Because he was nourishing and nursing sin in his heart. And God will not tolerate that stuff. And brothers and sisters, most fearfully, we just get hard towards God. We no longer enjoy his secret presence and weep before him and know his tender love towards us. And this applies, brothers and sisters, to single people as well as to the married. Single people, let me say to you today that what you cultivate now, you will cultivate later. If you cherish lustful thoughts now, you will cherish lustful thoughts in your marriage. If you don't practice self-control now, you will not practice self-control in your marriage. What you are follows you into your marriage. And if you disregard this holy estate of marriage now in such a way that as a single person, you cherish thoughts for another person's spouse, and you steal glances at another man's wife or at another woman's husband, and if you nurse those images and those thoughts in your mind and in your heart, you're going to do the very same thing when you're married. It will not change. Marriage will not solve that. Honor marriage when you're single, and you'll honor it when you're married. That's the law. That's the rule. Secondly, I want to say something to the engaged, and I want to say something to the dating. We do not honor marriage when we treat being engaged and when we treat a dating relationship as something essentially different from being single in the realm of physical and sexual intimacy. There are two categories in God's mind in this area of sexual morality. There are the married and there are the unmarried. That's it. If you are dating, you are unmarried. If you are engaged, you are unmarried. And being engaged doesn't give you any special privileges whatsoever in terms of sexual intimacy because until you are married, you are unmarried. <laughs> and there's a whole host of people that have been engaged and have become sexually intimate because they saw their wedding day on the horizon only to have their engagement fall apart for one reason or another and the wedding never happens. And when that occurs and you've become sexually intimate in the broadest sense of that phrase, then what's happened is that you've taken something that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to another man or it belongs to another woman. And you've become a thief in God's eyes. And in God's eyes, it's adultery. That's true of engaged couples. That's true of dating couples. I've been helped immeasurably by this, um, in this by the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Catechism says this. He says, adultery is anything that doesn't represent perfect chastity in a relationship. 
Adultery is anything that doesn't represent perfect chastity in a relationship. Anything that isn't perfectly chaste, whether single or married, is condemned by God, and it, says the Heidelberg theologians, is to be detested from the heart because such things do not honor and do not promote marriage. So adultery is not just a a term that we apply to the married. It's a term that we apply to dating people and single people and engaged people. Until you are married, you are not married. Thirdly, we do not honor marriage when we vaunt our marriage to the world. And we vaunt ourselves to the world in such a way that causes other people to stumble. And I've seen a very evil under the sun in our very self-indulgent and exhibitionist culture where a man or woman will go online and with a great degree of oozing and dripping verbal molasses, they'll post a flattering picture of their spouse and describe what a great find they've found without ever thinking, having a moment to reflect on this, of who might stumble across that post. In whatever state of painful despair regarding their own marriage, and say to themselves, oh, I wish I had a spouse that was so good as that, and so good-looking too. It's good and it's right to write love letters to our spouses. It's a joyful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's good to lavish our spouses with kind words and affectionate prose. But you cherish them. You keep them to yourselves. You don't need to publish those things. And brothers and sisters, why would you want to publish those flattering pictures of your spouse to the world? Why would you want to do this? Husbands, why would you want to show a beautiful picture of your wife to your friends? Do you want your spouse to be craved by them? Do you want your your spouse to be longed after by those men, to be looked at and desired by them? Why put them out in front of them? You see, biblically, the conduct of the spouse is to be jealous. (laughs) God shows the way in this. Multiple times, God says, I'm jealous over you. I'm jealous over you. Our job is to protect our spouse from the hungry eyes of other people. (laughs) Not to display them and say, won't you long for my wife? Won't you crave my husband? Look how wonderful he or she is. Our job, rather, is to protect our spouse from the hungry eyes of this people and not to invite them in. And let's be careful that we don't give reason for another husband or another wife or a single person to covet and to lust because of our false presentation that we've got it all together. Genuinely, those aren't true. And brothers and sisters today, the same goes for modesty. We do not honor marriage if we dress in such a way that purposefully incites the look and the desire of those around us. Now, I can only mention this, 
But modesty is one of the forgotten virtues of our age. Our society has very little concept of this word modesty. Dress code is an area of responsibility in this. Alistair Begg, he writes, he says, he says, it's important that we recognize the difference between making ourselves attractive and making ourselves deliberately seductive. Girls know the difference, and so do boys, he says. And in both of these arenas, how we present ourselves, how we present our spouses to the world, we need very carefully to heed Jesus' words. Temptation is sure to come, Jesus says. It's going to come. But then what does he say next? Woe to him through whom the temptation comes. You shall not commit adultery. Let marriage be honored by all, is our text today. And the great comfort we have today in view of this is twofold. Because we've all sinned in this area, all of us, to a person. Because we've all sinned in this area, our comfort is this, that Jesus today, he promises to forgive us. If we come to him with a repentant heart, Jesus suffered on a tree to forgive us our sins. And Jesus, through his blood, has power to make us white as snow. Whatever you've done, however you've failed, whatever mess you're in, Jesus today says, I will make you white as snow. And secondly, Romans 8, Jesus gives us the power to obey his commands. The sinful flesh we read is hostile to God's law, but the Spirit of God who now dwells within believers, he is not. He is for God's law. He loves God's law, and he is the power to make us say no to lawlessness. We who live by the Spirit today are set free to have our minds set on the things of the Spirit, which are the ways of God, which are honoring marriage and giving ourselves to these things. And so today we have the grace of forgiveness, and we have the grace of power. They're both ours. And may none of us today push these benefits aside. And may none of us in the weeks to come live outside of them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.